showcase our Training and Response podcast. This is episode 10, where we interview Major Greg Merrill with Oklahoma Task Force One. We will be talking to Greg about his Swiftwater Applications dryland class that he's bringing to the ASAR platform. Welcome back, everybody, to the ASAR Training and Response podcast this week. With me, as always, is co-host Carla Lewis. Hello, everybody. And also joining us is Greg Merrill. And Greg is joining us uh, today. We're going to introduce some new courses, but Greg has joined us on the ASAR Training platform to bring some really unique experience and perspective. Um, Welcome, Greg, to the show. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, obviously, my name is Greg Merrill, and I'm from Oklahoma. I live in a small town, Davis, Oklahoma, about an hour south of Oklahoma City. Uh, my background, I grew up as a son of a uh, Air Force fighter pilot, so I traveled all over the country following him around. And then I followed in his footsteps, became a pilot in the military myself, uh, was UH-60 Blackhawk helicopter pilot, a unit trainer for tactics and night vision goggles, as well as aviation safety officer. Took me to my job as a firefighter in Oklahoma City. So I'm an Oklahoma City fireman. And just rough background so you know about Oklahoma City. Basically, we have 37 fire stations, cover about 621 square miles, and we cover about 650,000 people in our population. So that's kind of where my background is heavy in the rescue field. I'm a major at Oklahoma City. And also, in my time with the Oklahoma City Fire Department, I was a company officer at Technical Rescue Station which we did swift water dive, rope rescue, trench, confined space, structure collapse rescue. And I was in charge of that station. And then I moved on my career, moved to continuing technical rescue with the hazmat station. So I was a station officer at our hazmat technical response station, serving the entire Oklahoma City metro area for hazmat. Wow. Currently, I'm also a tech. Go ahead. How many years have you been doing this? 18 with the fire department. Outstanding. And I served six years in the uh, Army as Blackhawk pilot outstanding and and now also with those positions with my rescue background i'm also a task force leader with OKTF one which is our urban search and rescue team for the state of oklahoma i've been with them since the inception been task force leader about five years now kind of progressed my way up through the ranks moved up and moved in task force leader role and with our deployments you know with OKTF one we've deployed obviously in our own state we have a lot of tornadoes in oklahoma as everybody knows We've deployed here. We've had flood response. And then over the last few years, actually started doing some national deployments. We deployed to Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane uh, Florence, as well as Hurricane Dorian just this last year. And a busy last year, we actually had a tornado response in El Reno, Oklahoma, which is about an hour west of Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. We did that as structural collapse deployment. We spent two weeks in Tulsa on swiftwater deployments, if you all remember the flooding back in May of last year. Right. And and then we also deployed to Hurricane Dorian, like I said earlier. Of course, we didn't do a whole lot in Dorian. Luckily, they didn't have the damage that people thought, which is a good thing. But we were deployed there, ready to go. And then I've been a technical rescue instructor in all disciplines for over 12 years. And like I said, my students include, you know, USAR personnel, firefighters, EMS, law enforcement, and military personnel. You guys have definitely been busy down there with with disasters. Uh, the The first time I was down in Oklahoma was after the uh, the Oklahoma City tornado, and uh, we were uh, working some of the animal issues. And then um, we were down there last May, and we were deployed down uh, south of Muskogee a little bit. 
and working some of right. the small cities uh, with evacuating animals out there and working with some of the local fire teams um, that had animal issues and, and just didn't have the equipment or the people or, or the support to deal with those animal issues until we got in. Um, but still, our paths hadn't, hadn't crossed with you guys yet uh, as a task force um, until I met you at the SUSAR conference here. Uh, this past fall. And for our, our listeners, the SUSAR is the State Urban Search and Rescue uh, Alliance Conference that they have, and they move around the country every year. And what really impressed me about Greg, not only is he a great instructor and great speaker, Greg was one of the few instructors that, that through this whole conference actually had animals in his program about swift water preparedness um, that, you know, I, I don't know whether you knew we were going to be there, Greg, or whether there's an animal component, but it really impressed me that you were telling people, hey, you're going to have animal issues if you're out in the flood, so be ready for those. And uh, yeah. so uh, as after his program, I went up and introduced myself, and we quickly found uh, a lot of mutual things in common. And so we're really excited to have you join the ASAR training platform and, and bring your experiences to, to our crew. Well, I appreciate that. And like I said, no, I did not know you're actually going to be in there, but you know, it's just something overlooked. All we think about is people, 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 and you know, we're going to rescue animals. We come across them as you saw in some of the videos I had, or also when you're taking, when you're rescuing people, they're not leaving without their animals. You know, a lot of these people, their animals just like their kids. Right now you got, um, in your training, you've got a unique playground in your backyard. You want to talk a little bit about the, the water area? Yes, I have, you know, I am completely spoiled. I always tell people in all my classes that it's my brag that I have a great place to train, kind of rub it into everybody else. Uh, it's called River Sport Rapids. It's in downtown Oklahoma City, just actually outside. And it's actually the kayak training ground for the Olympic team. And so they do a lot of stuff there. And with that, we have the ability to do all kinds of training at that facility with boat operations, swift water rescue or rescue swimmers. And we actually, as part of OKTF1, we have an eight start team, which is our helicopter search and rescue team. And we do training there with that. And what this, what place allows us to do is really challenge ourselves. And we can put ourselves in very unique situations that are very lifelike. You know, instead of just a lot of places, they may release some water below a dam and it doesn't give the same kind of training aspect that you can in a controlled environment that we have. We can get in some very difficult water, but it's safety. It's, it's, there's safety is paramount out there in the training ground. And it allows us to really push ourselves and push our training so that we're prepared for pretty much anything. Yeah, I haven't had the pleasure of, of being down there yet, but I, I hope to get down there uh, soon to, to see that uh, water park in action. Uh, we've always used uh, up here in Kansas City, we're, we're in the same boat, so to speak, as we don't have a lot of great water to train in. So we go to Worlds of Fun um, in the off season and, and use the Fury of the Nile ride uh, for our whitewater. Uh, but again, it's not always accessible. Um, and you know, when you need to do training, it, it may not be available. So having something uh, to that caliber of facility uh, at your fingertips is, is an outstanding resource. And, you know, for folks uh, that are interested in, in training with Greg, if you go to our website, 
um, and go to the training, you're going to see his class listed on there as the Swiftwater First Responder course. And what's really unique about this course is we have a lot of departments and a lot of agencies that can't afford uh, the PPE, the dry suits, uh, or don't have the location to start working in, in Swiftwater. But Greg, you've come up with a unique approach to that uh, course where folks don't have to have water for you to go in and teach. No, we don't. Uh, you know, they, later on in our training, we move into the water situation. But we found, based on my experience with a, a lot of people, if you, if you throw the water in immediately, it kind of throws a wrench in the training. We want you to perfect those skills, understand what you're doing. We talk about it on dry land and put all those situations into practice. And then we move into the water environment once we get into more advanced courses. And it seems like really more conducive to learning. And like you said, a lot of people don't have the PPE. And they then the class it offers also offers them the ability to see what kind of equipment they need for their cash. Because with my class, and with all the training we do, they can call me anytime. I've worked with a lot of departments. I actually worked with our own uh, Department of Homeland Security here in Oklahoma on equipment cash for swift water teams. What do you need? Okay, I have five people, six people. I have a 10-person team. I want to get something started. So by utilizing this class and other trainings, you can understand what, what cash or equipment you really need for what your capabilities are. Yeah, and, and that is just that, – that's a – a great place to start with that. And I think a lot of our departments um, that, that we deal with is they may only have flood situations once every five to 10 years. Um, but yet when they're forced into that situation, uh, you know, they've always felt like they've had to go to a water training, any type of awareness or, or basic operations to give them a, a little bit more safety as far as what type of uh, PFD to have in a throw bag can get you a long way in, in human rescue or, or self-rescue uh, if you get caught in a bad situation. And even more, something like your course is going to hopefully keep them out of that bad situation with recognition of, hey, that's hazardous. Let's not do that without a lot of support and, and let's really evaluate that site uh, before we, uh, you know, make, make a move to, to do any type of rescue or, or searches in, in an area. And that's true. And that's what we try to emphasize too is this class is heavily shore-based and also helps assist rescue teams that may go, what we call go rescue. But you hit the nail on the head. The best thing to do is stay out of the water. I don't, my team is very well trained. I don't care about your level of training. If we can stay out of the water, that's even better. You know, and these classes show you how you can do so many rescues from the shore. We don't have to get in the water if we can avoid it at all costs. Uh, like, Part of the class, we have a section we call Beyond the Throw, and that's just beyond the throw bag. A lot of people throw throw bags, but we'll show you with a throw bag how to get PFDs to victims, how to utilize those to make downstream safeties, how to do foot entrapment rescues. So there's all kinds of things with a throw bag. Like you said, if, if you give me a PFD and a throw bag you can and a couple of carabiners, you can do so much. Yeah, I mean, that is really great stuff. I, um, I'm i an animal control officer here in Kansas, and I work under a fire department, or I'm sorry, under a police department. And a lot of times we're the first people on that call, and we're there, you know, trying to, you know, 
establish a, a perimeter and, and, and safety things before the fire department gets there. So it'd be really great. I can see applications for um, animal control officers and, and police departments yes. and, and those p- people who, who are there first on scene and ways that they could, um, you know, pitch in and help a little bit and, and secure the scene before the fire department gets there. Trained uh, the ERT of the Oklahoma Highway Patrol on that, because like you said, law enforcement, a lot of times is going to be the first ones on scene especially in some of our rural areas like I have in Oklahoma, we have volunteer fire departments where it may be 30 minutes before the fire department gets there and the sheriff or the troopers or even the local law enforcement will be the first ones on the scene and they need to do something. You know, that's the thing. We have a, as responders, we have an obligation to act and we're going to do something, but let's do something that we're well-trained for and understand our capabilities and also limitations. We see it all the time where somebody's putting themselves in danger just because they they were sent there on scene and they feel like they have to do something. That's what they were sent there to do. And without any training, that's incredibly dangerous. So that's uh, really excited about that, you know, aspect of your class. So kind of changing yeah. gears a little bit. In your experience, uh, what has some of the challenges been with animals um, during some of your rescues? And do you see the climate kind of changing with fire departments on how they're handling those situations? Yeah, I really do. I think it's as, you know, with nothing helps more than experience. And sometimes we get so focused, it's a people thing. But now as we have deployed much more and we've seen how many animals are out there and the things that you approach, we need to understand those. So I think we are getting more progressive with that. And some of our biggest challenges is how do we transport these pets? You know, we're forward deployed, maybe in a boat doing a hasty search or doing a recon of an area and you come across a dog or any other animal, where do I put them in my boat? How do I do it safely? And how do I control that animal without hurting the animal or hurting myself? You know, because animals are just like people. They have a fear factor. They don't know we're there to help them. And they will react the same way as a person. Sometimes the person will hurt you, even though you're there to rescue them. And some of these animals are a lot stronger than us, so we deal with that. They have more teeth, too. (laughs) Yes. And along with that is when we do bring them back, where do we put them at what we call the BOO, the base of operations? We We have casualty collection points where we do triage on people. We're starting to develop those on our animal rescues as well place to put animals a triage we do have a vet with oktf1 that works with our live scent canines and so i'm going to try to reach out to him so when we do deploy he can contact vets in the areas that we do go at and maybe we can get with some of the local vets some of the local vet techs they can come out and help us with that casualty collection point for animals yeah, that's a great idea uh, because the, the veterinary piece has always been one of those pieces that we haven't um, been able to fill on a regular basis without a lot of networking. Uh, we can, through the ASAR teams, you know, we can come in with transports and in, in the animal world, um, we use the term lily pad for that area where animals are brought into temporarily until the, you know, they're, they're cataloged and then they decide, are they being reunified with their owners? Are they going on to an emergency animal shelter or do they need medical care and need to go to a vet's office? Where's there a vet on scene to do that triage? Um, so, you know, that kind of brings us back into, and, and for our listeners, I know I beat this drum on every podcast, but the ASAR, USAR Mission Ready packaging uh, that's just now starting to really be pushed at the state level, um, that was the whole reason the ASAR 
typing was done last July by FEMA because they needed that mechanism for ASAR teams to support USAR teams uh, so the USAR teams can go on with their life safety priorities and missions. And we see it time and time again, uh, it doesn't matter what state we're in or whether it's a, a flood or a hurricane, is USAR teams are in for the hasty evac. People are coming out with their pets and, you know, some people can't stay with their pets because they have medical issues and the USAR team is stuck, you know, well, what do I do with this dog now? And we've, we've heard the stories where people say, you know, there's so much going on. I've just handed the animal to anybody on shore and then they're back on the water. And I know in their heart, they're trying to do the right thing. But that really, you know, you don't know who you're handling that pet off to. There's a little bit of liability there since it's a piece of property and, and we can do it a better way. So if the ASAR teams can put that support structure in place for the USAR teams or if the USAR teams are, are working hasty uh, evacuations ahead of us and they say, okay, and, and I'll go back to Weber's Falls, Oklahoma last, last uh, spring, they called us in because fire said, we've got dogs hanging in trees. We've got cats in houses. We don't have any capture equipment and we still have people issues going on. We need an ASAR team down here. And they knew exactly where all the animals were. They took us literally, these dogs were hanging in trees in the water. Um, they took us right to the tree. He's been hanging here for two days. We don't know what to do with him. Um, and they took us to the house. Hey, there's nine cats in here. Um, and that worked out well because we were equipped to handle that. And then they didn't have to. Um, but, but the whole mission ready packaging for the ASAR teams is to number one, have an ASAR team that is high speed and credentialed and can run with a task force team without getting in the way and without task force worrying about they're going to become victims themselves for making bad decisions. But then number two is giving that animal uh, capacity to that team and then have the PIOs our public information officers put that messaging out there saying, hey, Oklahoma Task Force One is on the ground. They've got an ASAR team with them. Plan to bring your animals out because the ASAR team can handle that. And we handle that structure of that animal coming to a lily pad or that drop-off point being assessed and then off to the shelter or off to a reunification area. And, and the emergency management USAR teams don't have to deal with that piece because it's already done. Um, so that's, that's the beauty and that's where we're all heading and that's what we're seeing in the after action reports from state emergency management and these emergency support functions. They want this to happen for the sake of getting people and their animals out of harm's way faster and more efficiently and then reunite, reunified uh, on the other side. Exactly. Like I said, you know, working together, you know, the more we can working with ASART and understanding what they can offer, what how they can complement the USART teams, it, it's just phenomenal what uh, efforts can be done. So for your, for Oklahoma Task Force One, um, do you guys, when, when there's a big state event, you get a large tornado coming in there, um, are requests done through your department um, or, or is there a, a, a state coordinator that works with the task force? How do you guys get deployed at a task force level? What normally happens, it usually goes in state, it goes to the Office of Emergency Management. We don't actively advertise. I mean, people know what we can do, but if your community's hit by a tornado, I don't call you and say, hey, do you need us? But what we have done, me and the other task force leaders, we've gone out to the rural areas and told them what we can offer and how to get the ball rolling. That is by calling the emergency management, state emergency manager, and then he'll find out their needs. 
And it's up to them that they will deploy us out from there. We get deployed from emergency manager. We do not self-deploy, which I can emphasize to all the people that want to do rescues, do not self-deploy. But we are requested through Office of Emergency Management throughout the state, and that's how we're deployed out. And our host agency of the task force is actually Oklahoma City Fire. So it actually comes through our chain of command as well. Great. No, and, and that's great clarification because it is important for people um, to understand that the task force isn't usually the first one out the door. It's going to be local resources, and then, then there has to be communication up. So when the civilian groups look at what's going on in their communities, and so many times they say we're not getting the help we need, a lot of it may just be nobody knows that there needs to be help there, but then they put the cry out on social media you know, somebody help us, get us, get us first responders, but everybody needs to understand that there is a chain of command and the, as soon as local resources are exhausted, hopefully they're calling up and, and getting communication to their emergency manager who then is up that chain. And then as, as we continue to work state to state resources, does Oklahoma have mutual aid agreements with surrounding states or how do you bring in a, a team? If you have a really big event and need relief, how do you bring in other teams? Actually, we do. We call it the Talon Agreement, the Talon being Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, New Mexico. And it's kind of it's similar to a mutual aid agreement between the states that if you need help, basically those emergency managers call each other, say in Oklahoma City, we had a devastating tornado beyond our capabilities. We need teams in. We need two type three teams, two type two teams, whatever kind of request that is. And then those agencies will come or we, again, we'll go to other states. And that's something that uh, our emergency managers have worked out. And again, that is through a chain of command, through the emergency manager, and then it'll come down to us. So, Greg, a lot of people see, you know, what we do on on social media or any, you know, posts. And they're like, you know, I really want to do that. And, of course, we always encourage them to take, you know, take our classes, take as many classes as you can. What kind of advice do you have to someone who wants to get into technical rescue? And what kind of classes do you think they should take? Well, like I said, first of all, I think one of the basic classes you can take is a basic swift water type class. If it is going to be a swift water response, you're looking for flood water. We need to start with the basics, get you a foundation. And beyond that, I recommend a rope class. Not necessarily, you don't have to do all the repelling. You can, that's the fun part of it. But with technical rescue in whatever phase, ropes is a major element. And that can be basic knot tying, which we go into in my class as well. But we actually have a one day, developing a one day rope for uh, swift water class where we get more in a mechanical advantage, understanding how to assist teams, how to tension, tension diagonals using what we call Z-rig or mechanical advantage. So continue on the rope classes. And then something I think is overlooked a lot of times is our incident management classes. Because in the fire service, we use quite a bit of chain of command. We talk about an incident commander and everybody understands who to report to. And that's very important on these deployments like we talked about not self-deploying. There's online classes through uh, FEMA there are ICS like 100, 200, and 700. If you go to the website for training for FEMA.gov, you can get these classes and it kind of understands who you're going to report to and how things work, where to check in, because accountability is so vital on these things. You know, these incidents can grow so big that you lose 
you can lose people if they just start coming in and they're trying to do good, but they need to understand who to check in with, understand checking with a resource officer, get the proper assignment, know what communication we're using, whether it's a VHF radio, what kind of radios we're using, what frequencies we are on. And, you know, accountability is key, but taking those ICS classes are very important as well. Yeah, we talk all the time about, you know, speaking the right language and, you know, knowing the right person to talk to. And, you know, a lot of people are just like, well, you know, I wouldn't wait for that. I would just go in and and rescue animals or people who needed to be rescued. And, you know, people don't realize just how dangerous it is. And, you know, it's just checks and balances. And, you know, you check in, you check out. That way everybody knows, you know, when you're safe and when you can relax for the evening. So, you know, I really appreciate that, those comments. Is there anything else you want to talk about, Greg? Well, just the, basically my biggest thing I would try to get out of all my swift water training is don't get complacent. Complacency is what gets people hurt. I hear it all the time. I grew up on the lake. I know how to swim. These areas are so challenging. They're so diverse that you really got to focus on on the scene itself. Make sure and do a good scene size up. Understand your capabilities, your limitations. Sometimes we all think we're Superman, but you're not, you know, and it goes back to, you all make sure you have not only the right people, but the right equipment as well. The example I always give as a firefighter, that being the firefighter background, I consider myself a good firefighter, but dressed in shorts and a t-shirt, I am not good going interior on a fire tax. I'm not wearing a proper PPE. Same thing with swift water. You might be a great swift water rescue person, but if you don't have the equipment with you, you may not be able to form the rescue that you actually want to. So really, really take that into account that you've got to have all pieces together. And that goes with your people, your training and your equipment. That's such a great point because, you know, I, I have literally had teams tell me that they're sending me swift water certified or boat operator certified responders and they have not kidding shown up in waders, an orange PFD around their neck and a hard hat. <laughs> and I'm exactly. Like, no, not, not even. And, and, you know, I don't know what you guys are even thinking by bringing this on scene. So for our listeners, guys, I cannot stress enough uh, what a great asset this is going to be to have an eight-hour dry land course that we can customize, um, we can bundle uh, in and and uh, start your agencies with some swift water or some flood water basic awareness and, and uh, shore-based skills because you can do so much. And if you think it's never going to happen in your area, we are seeing catastrophic flooding in areas that we've never seen it before. We continue to have a very wet year this year, and Greg, I don't know what they're saying down your way, but you know we've been talking the state of Mississippi here because Jackson area has been flooding, and they say they're two months ahead of their rain schedule, and we're just starting on on the wet season. Are they looking pretty wet down your way? Yes, it really is. Uh, we're looking at uh, it's going to be probably very similar to last year. You know, last year, like you came down as well, we had significant flooding. And I hope in Kansas, actually, when we were in Tulsa, we got a call from Kansas Office of Emergency Management. They're actually looking, asking if we were available to go up there if we were needed. We weren't needed, but they had us kind of, but we're on standby, but we were already deployed into Tulsa at the time. So right. it, I, I plan on it happening again. 
Yeah, we are too. We've been watching it real close. And um, so for, for folks that are interested in checking out Greg's class, go to acertraining.com and click on the training and it's the Swiftwater first responder course. And we'll put you in touch with Greg because again, that's just got a basic description there of, of what we can bring to you. But again, we can customize if you have specific scenarios or specific type of water in your area, um, we can sure adapt to that. Well, Greg, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Miss Carla, do you got any parting words of wisdom? Just everybody check us out on Instagram and Facebook. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. And like Eric said, check out our website at www.acertraining.com.